The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. And we're at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Now, this section, verse 17 through 20, forms a natural heading for the rest of the so-called Sermon on the Mount. And I think that probably the most important aspect of it, in terms of the overall structure of these chapters, these early chapters of the teaching of Yeshua, is how this section ends. It says that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so the, the point of the Sermon on the Mount then is to describe how Yeshua explains how one's righteousness could surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So it will be good for us just at the beginning of this section to look at kind of a structure of these uh, verses, verses 17 through 20, as they form a natural heading to the larger section which we'll uh, follow and study in the coming weeks. They, but they not only look forward, they also tie in what has already been said because he has, has said just previously in verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that you may see your good, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So the question is, what is meant by your good works? And the ensuing uh, teaching of our Master will indeed indicate what it me- what he means in terms of how we are to fulfill these mitzvot, these commandments. So let's look at the at these verses, verses 17 through 20, in terms of the structure. And we see that there is a, an interesting structure. The first uh, verse, verse 17, Do not think I came to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. So it has both a, posit- a negative and a positive. It begins with a negative. Do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah, the prophets, and then it has a positive, I came to fulfill. And there's kind of a a proof uh, in the middle for this this section, verses 17 and 18. He goes on to say, uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest aspect of God's word will pass away. Well, that's a negative. In other words, it will not pass away. And then comes the positive, until all will be accomplished. So the very fact that the heavens and the earth remain sustained by God himself is proof that he continues to uh, sustain his word. His word is what brings about, brought about the creation in the first place, right? And his word is what maintains the creation. So the fact that he continues to maintain the creation is proof that his word is active. And therefore, his word is, has not been abolished, could not be abolished, and Yeshua makes that clear. I did not come to abolish the Torah or the prophets, but to fulfill. And the proof of that, then, is the enduring uh, nature of the creative, created universe. And then he goes on to make an application of this basic statement, that he did not come to abolish the Torah and the prophets, but to fulfill. He goes on to say in the next verse, whoever annuls even the least uh, commandment and so teaches others to annul the commandments will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Again, we have a negative statement. Now, in this case, um, we have a, a corresponding negative statement on the at the very end. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So we have a nice little... Uh, literary motif going on here where we have kind of bookends. Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments, a negative statement, and then it concludes with will not enter the kingdom of heaven, also a negative statement. And so we can see how the parallel uh, structure helps us understand the primary import of Yeshua's words. 
So in the negative, whoever annuls even the least commandment and so teaches others to annul the commandments will be least in the kingdom of heaven. The positive, whoever does the commandments and teaches others to do them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then, so what is the conclusion? Well, one's righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the final verse tells us, or one would not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's just look quickly at a couple of things that this uh, tells us, uh, the structure tells us, in terms of the meaning of the text. So, the first one is that the concept of abolish is further defined by the structure as annulling and teaching others to annul the commandments. So we have a good understanding of what abolish means when he says, I did not come to abolish the Torah and the prophets. He goes on to explain that by telling us anyone who annuls the least of the commandments or anyone who teaches others to annul the commandment. So annulling and abolishing, we see, are the, are the same thing. Now, secondly, fulfilling, then, is further defined in the positive sense by doing. If annulling parallels abolishing, then what parallels fulfilling? Do you see the structure? you see how I'm, how I'm uh, structuring this? The, the fulfilling is paralleled by whoever does the commandments and teaches others to do them. All right? So the, the negatives uh, parallel each other and the positives parallel each other. And then thirdly, those who enjoy membership in the kingdom of heaven are known for their righteousness. That's obvious by what Yeshua teaches us here. The standard of righteousness is the eternal word of God, the Torah and the prophets. So, don't think I've come to abolish the Torah and the prophets. I've come to fulfill. What does fulfill mean? It means to do the commandments and to teach others to do them. And so, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But what is righteousness? Well, righteousness is defined by that very Torah and prophets which are done, the commandments of which are done, and therefore this defines what Yeshua is talking about in terms of righteousness. He's talking about very practical righteousness here. And then we see, astoundingly, that the benchmark for this righteousness is the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he's not simply uh, telling us about a righteousness which is forensic, although surely that is involved. What I mean by forensic is that so-called, what some people have called positional righteousness, or the righteousness that we have imputed to us. Uh, through our faith in Yeshua. Of course, this is very important. This is very fundamental, very foundational. But what Yeshua is saying here is that one's righteousness is manifest by what one does, how one lives, and that unless one's righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, we, we wonder why he would use the scribes and the Pharisees as a benchmark for such practical righteousness, everyday doing of righteousness. Well, well, we'll talk more about that. So we can see, if we take a moment to um, look at the structure of these verses, we can see how the structure itself gives us a, a bit of understanding as to what uh, the, the words and the phrases mean. All right. The opening verse of this section, therefore, makes it clear that Yeshua did not consider his teaching to be at variance with Moses. And he did not ever want his Talmudim to think that it did. So, to interpret the ensuing context, the so-called antitheses, which we'll get to, you have heard it said, but I say to you in chapter 5, to, to interpret these antitheses as though Yeshua was replacing the words of Torah with his own teaching is completely wrong-headed. And here's a quote from the uh, Alice and Davies commentary. On Matthew, as the introduction or preamble to chapter five, verses twenty-one through forty-eight—that is, this preamble being verses seventeen through twenty that we're studying—it is intended to prevent the readers of the first gospel from making two errors. First, it plainly states that the six subsequent paragraphs are not to be interpreted, as they have been so often by so many, as antitheses. Antitheses that, in at least two or three instances, set aside the Torah. Instead, 
Jesus upholds the law so that between him and Moses there can be no real conflict. Then, secondly, and despite the concord declared by 5.17-19, tells us that, when Jesus re- that what Jesus requires of his followers surpasses what has traditionally been regarded by the scribes and Pharisees as the requirements of the Torah. So Yeshua is clearly telling his disciples that they, they, they do need to move forward in terms of understanding what it means to do the Torah. There's something that is additional to that which was done by the scribes and the Pharisees, which they must uh, be doing. But what is that? We'll see. So, this opening phrase, do not think that I came to abolish the Torah and the prophets. This opening negative imperative or negative command is not rhetorical, as though it means I surely hope no one thinks. These opening words of our Master rebuts a real misunderstanding. Apparently, there were those who thought Yeshua was speaking against the Torah. But how could this have been the case? On what grounds would Yeshua have been so misunderstood as to require a clear and direct rebuttal to the misunderstanding? Now, some have suggested that this opening phrase was redacted by Matthew in the post-destruction era, when the emerging Christian church was moving toward an antinomian misunderstanding of the Master's words. In other words, some are saying, well, this must prove that uh, that Matthew, this Gospel of Matthew was written after uh, the destruction of the temple and during the time of the emerging Christian church when there was controversies about uh, the Torah and there were those who wanted to make sure that the, the Torah or, and the prophets were not done away with, and so they, they uh, put these words, as it were, in the mouth of Yeshua. These uh, who would hold such a view would point to any lack of the synoptic parallel to strengthen this approach. In other words, the, we don't find these words of Yeshua in Mark or Luke. But we do have similar language in Matthew 10.34, where we do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, which does have a synoptic parallel in Luke 12, and could therefore not be construed as entirely redactional by Matthew. It is far better, then, to see in these words the clear statement of our Master, who was rebutting some misunderstanding that had arisen over his teaching. What could that have been? Well, I think if we understand the the first century Judaisms and the manner in which they were debating over halakhic issues and over exactly how to uh, apply the Torah in everyday living and how some were uh, very strict, like the uh, Essenes in the Dead Sea area, so-called Qumran uh, community, uh, were extremely strict. Uh, We know that there were certain Pharisees that were very strict. There were other Pharisees who were not so strict. And uh, we know of the controversies that went on between the various Judaisms. And one would accuse the other of not keeping the Torah because they weren't doing it exactly the way that one sect or another had determined it should be done. So I think if we have this background in mind, we can understand why some might have said that Yeshua was uh, abolishing or coming to abolish the Torah. So it is better to posit such a misunderstanding as springing from the fact that Yeshua was at variance with the standard or familiar interpretation of key Torah texts. In disagreeing with the authorities of his day over exactly how the Torah was to be interpreted and applied, he may have been accused of dismantling the rabbinic opinions and, as such, would have been judged as abolishing the Torah. For the ruling interpretations of the sages were considered necessary for the proper application of Torah. We read, for instance, in Perkei Vote, the uh, sayings of the fathers, 3.11, a list of those who have no place in the world to come. Rabbi Eliezer the Modite says, He who treats holy things as secular, and he who defiles the appointed times, he who, he who humiliates his fellow in public, he who removes the signs of the covenant of Abraham our father, may he rest in peace, and he who gives interpretations of the Torah which are not according to oral halakha, even though he has in hand learning in Torah and good deeds, will have no share in the world to come. 
So we can see how these, uh, th- those who profane holy things, uh, those who fail to set aside the uh, Sabbath, uh, the Shabbat, and the Moedim, the appointed times, uh, humiliating uh, someone in public was uh, considered by the sages to be a very grave offense. He removes the signs of the covenant. There were those who were trying to reverse their circumcision in order to fit into the Hellenistic uh, culture. Uh, He who gives interpretations of Torah which are not according to oral halacha then is put on the same level. And so, essentially, those who would uh, clearly disagree with the established uh, rulings of the rabbis could be considered as having overstepped such a boundary as to be cut off from his people and therefore seeking to, in doing so, to uh, abolish the Torah for the Torah of the oral traditions as well as the Torah of the written uh, Torah were considered by many and at least by some of the sages we, we know were considered to to have equal value. And so it, it seems that this more than likely was what was being said about Yeshua. So it is this last item that interests us here. He who gives interpretations of Torah which are not according to oral halakha. Here, changing the interpretation of a Torah text and thus offering a radically different halakha based upon the reinterpretation is considered an egregious error equivalent with other crimes that cause a forfeiture of a place in the world to come. It is therefore understandable how Yeshua, giving as he does a different interpretation of Torah text than did some of his contemporaries, might be accused of abolishing the Torah. Interestingly, later on, Paul would also be accused of teaching against the Torah of Moses, right? This was the accusation that was uh, brought to the attention of James and others uh, when... uh, Paul returned to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21. We may also compare the note included by Luke in his history of the apostles in Acts chapter 6 verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Yeshua will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So here again we have the customs uh, of Moses. This would be uh, possibly speaking of the oral Torah, the traditions of the elders. All right. He he says, I uh, do not think that I came to abolish the Torah. Now, why does he say, I came? There are numbers of these sayings found in the Gospels, and they speak to Yeshua's self-understanding of his mission. We may note the following, and I've listed them there. For instance, in Matthew 10.34, Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Mark 1.38, He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Luke 12.49 I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. So that's a sign of judgment. John 9.39 And Yeshua said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 12.27, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. So he's speaking of his uh, acknowledgement, his knowing that he is on his way to uh, the execution stake in Jerusalem. Same chapter, verse 46 of John, uh, chapter 12, verse 46 of John. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in the darkness. And then finally, John 18:37. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Yeshua answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So we may summarize uh, these into, I've summarized them into seven. Yeshua came to fulfill 
the Torah, and the prophets. He came to preach the good news of the kingdom. He came to bring judgment upon the earth. He came to give life, abundant life, to his sheep. He came to offer himself as a sin offering. He came to bring light to those in darkness, and he came to testify of the truth. In our immediate text, Yeshua's mission is to fulfill the Torah and the prophets. It may well be that this phrase is a broad description of all that his mission entailed. In other words, to fulfill the Torah and the prophets was to preach the good news, was to bring judgment, right? Because the Torah not only has blessing, but also has cursings. And to give abundant life to his sheep. This abundant life should not only be viewed as, as life in the world to come, but abundant life that is now, which the Torah brings. The Torah brings abundant life because as we obey God, he blesses us. And his ways are good and right for us. He knows us. He's given us his Torah as a way uh, of life that brings about uh, happiness and joy. He came to offer himself as a sin offering. In what way does the Torah speak of this? In the whole sacrificial system. The fulfilling of the Torah and the prophets is fulfilled in Yeshua's uh, role as, as priest, as the sacrifice, as the one who intercedes, and so forth and so on, to bring light to those in darkness. And uh, perhaps this is particularly thinking of uh, the Gentiles, uh, the nations who had not heard of the gospel, who, who, were, was not, uh, who were not originally given the, uh, the Torah in terms of its written form in the scriptures. And uh, yet it says in Isaiah that the coastlands would wait expectantly for his Torah. And so as the Torah goes out, it is the giving of the good news of the gospel of Yeshua, of uh, the recognition that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. When this message comes to the nations, to those who are in darkness, it brings them light. And, of course, to testify of the truth, to show God's way of saving sinners. This is the message of the Torah and the prophets and the message that God had chosen Israel to be his own covenant people and to be a light to the nations. So in, in one sense, to fulfill the Torah and the prophets is to accomplish all of these I have come statements of the Gospels. Now, he says... He says, don't let anyone say or do not think that I came to abolish the Torah and the prophets. What does this word abolish mean? The Greek word is kataluo, which is used most often uh, to describe the destruction of physical things such as buildings. The same verb is used to describe the words of Yeshua when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Those who were saying, I, we heard him say this in all of the Gospels. The word is also used in the sense of nullify or render ineffective, especially in reference to laws or decrees. So I've given you a couple of references out of uh, Second Maccabees and one out of four Maccabees uh, where it was used of setting aside uh, uh, laws and decrees. So some have suggested that by abolish, Yeshua means to wrongly interpret for instance, Brad Young in his book uh, is, uh, takes this view. He writes, The word abolish means to interpret incorrectly. In the Greek, the word kataluo means abolish, and its dynamic Hebrew equivalent, batel, is often used in contexts that deal with interpreting Scripture. One cancels Torah when it is misunderstood. Now, I think this is true. But is this, does this fit our, uh, our text? While it may be true that misinterpretation was viewed by the sages as equivalent to abolish the Torah, it is not clear that the Hebrew word batel is the dynamic equivalent of the Greek kataluo, as Young suggests. In the 40 times kataluo is found in the Septuagint, it is never translated by batel. In the 7 times batel is found in the Tanakh, most often it is translated by katargeo, to nullify, to become ineffective. It's once by argeo, same basic root, to linger or to stop. 
Granted, the use of batel in the Hebrew of the first century may not be reflected by the Septuagint usage, and it is clear that the verb is found in rabbinic context discussing the undoing of rabbinic dictum. In other words, to undo what a, what a sage has taught, or to go contrary to what he has taught, as we read in Perkei Avot. Ultimately, the meaning in the sense of abolish is best learned from its opposite, to fulfill, as I've already noted in the structure. If we want to know what abolish means, we, we see what fulfill is. Fulfill is the opposite of abolish, abolish the opposite of fulfill in our context. He did not come to render the Torah and the prophets as useless for his Talmudim, but to make the words of the inspired text all the more applicable and real in their lives. So we might say, I did not come to uh, abolish, by that meaning to set aside, or to render unimportant, or to simply uh, let it go by the wayside, but I came to actually cause the Torah to be effective in the lives of, of, of his people. Here we have a quote from uh, Dr. Fluser, who's now passed away, and his, may his memory be blessed. He was a great scholar and a very, very good voice for the study of early Judaisms and Christianity. And he writes, This does not mean that Jesus was unaware of the fact that his arguments would seem unusual to some of the conformists of his day. But even in these cases, he would by no means be described as an innovator. In order to prevent such an impression, he opened his exposition with a preamble, the text we're studying. His interpretation of the texts that follow this preamble may have appeared quite daring or unconventional to a number of his hearers. Nevertheless, he begins by emphasizing that he did not come to undermine the meaning of the Torah by his exegesis. On the contrary, he came to establish the true significance of the Torah and place it on firmer ground. And I think... Fluzer has uh, hit it right on the mark. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit TorResource.com. Now, why does he say the Torah and the prophets? Here, the Greek noun namas most certainly means Torah. Uh, the Greek word namas is usually translated by law. And that's a good translation of namas. But if you look at the word Torah all the way through the Tanakh, and then you look to see how the Septuagint translates Torah, almost inevitably it translates it with namas. So, when you read namas, when you read the Greek word namas in the, in the apostolic scriptures, a good deal of the time you should think Torah. That's probably what it means. Being used together with prophets to, dis, to denote the Tanakh. Some have stressed that the lack of writings. We know that the Tanakh is made of three parts, right? The Torah, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim. So why doesn't he say, I didn't come to abolish the Torah, the, the prophets, and the writings? Some have stressed that the fact that the word writings is not included indicates that Matthew was writing at a time before the canonization of the final section of the Tanakh. When did, when did the Bible, when did the Tanakh actually come to its present state? Yeah. After the New Testament. I think I don't think so. I don't think so. I think by the time of the first century CE, you had the essential books that we now have. They were numbered differently. They were grouped together differently. But you have in First Esdras, you have an indication uh, that the Torah or that the Tanakh was comprised of the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, and uh, that's first century BCE. Yes. Now, the, the fact that there were some disputed books. Is you know that's clear. Uh, Ezekiel was disputed. Esther was disputed. Kohelet was disputed. Daniel was disputed. Uh, and the question, the, the argument was, does it make the hands unclean or not? Uh, but the majority of opinion 
was that these were clearly to be included in the scrolls of sacred scripture and that in fact they did make the hands unclean. Um, we have we have far less problem with the canonization of the Tanakh than we do with the apostolic scriptures. You mean as, as to which books were there? Yes. It was, it was all generally accepted a long time right. before the New Testament, but it was officially canonized, to my understanding, after Constantine. Well, you know, I, 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 um, I don't have a lot of... Uh, I haven't found a lot of support for the idea of an official canonization process. Um, it appears that at, by the time of the Mishnah, which is finalized in 200, you clearly have the books that are, are are sacred and the books that are not. And there's clear demarcation, and it's set down in in, in the Mishnah, uh, or, or I shouldn't say set down, but it's referred to in the Mishnah. And the fact that you have Yeshua being able to say, well, here we have the, then uh, I give you some of the, yeah, in Luke uh, 2.44, all three sections are mentioned. That all things which are written about me in the Torah of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Where Moses stands for the Torah and Psalms for the Ketuvot or writings. But earlier in the chapter, verse 27, we read, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So we see here that Torah and prophets can be a, 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 a phrase that means the whole Bible as far as Yeshua and the people of his time were concerned. Yeah. Wouldn't that make sense with them using the Septuagint because they're major writing? It would already have been either they did it together and canonized it as their major Septuagint or that was already in place as they were. Well, sure, absolutely. Yeah. So for him to say something like this not being a major text, that means. Yeah. I mean, people had to know what he was talking about when he said this. And that means it had to be pretty well in place. So, my point is that when Yeshua says, I did not come to abolish the Torah or the prophets, he's essentially saying all of the scriptures. I didn't come to abolish the scriptures, the scriptures as they were then formulated in his day. Of course, we know that the apostolic scriptures didn't come about until later. Isn't that interesting to think that when Yeshua was a small boy and he did his memorization projects, he never memorized John 3.16? <laughs> <laughs> he probably knew it, though. Yeah, he probably did. <laughs> he did read that Isaiah. But why does Yeshua include the word prophets here? In the next verse, he speaks only of the Torah without mentioning the prophets. It is possible that the word Torah is used broadly in verse 18 to include all of the scripture. Most probably, however, is the idea that by including prophets in the opening verse of the section, Yeshua intended to emphasize the fulfillment aspect of his ministry. I like what Allison Davies suggests. But there here must, we fancy, be an important motive, that is, for including the word prophets. And it is probably this. For Matthew, who has seen in the coming of Jesus Messiah the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, not only is the prophetic portion of the scriptures no less important than the five books of Moses, but the law and the prophets together constitute in his eyes a united prophetic witness. The prophets and the law prophesied until John. So Matthew cannot simply let it be said that Jesus fulfilled the law or that Jesus fulfilled the prophets. He must tell us that he fulfilled both. But to fulfill. What does it mean to fulfill? As everyone recognizes, the meaning given to the verb to fulfill, which is the verb plerao, we get our word plethra from that idea, in our verse is key to understanding the entire section. For if Yeshua clearly did not come to abolish the Torah and the prophets, but to fulfill them, in understanding what he means by fulfill, we discover a central emphasis of his mission and work. It has been a fairly standard Christian understanding to interpret the meaning of fulfill here to, as to finish, to complete. And by the way, plerao can mean that. The, the verb in the Greek can mean that. The interpretation of the verse is then that Yeshua fulfilled the Torah in every way and as a result it no longer is a functioning component of God's will in the lives of Christians. While its precepts and wisdom are still valuable, the Torah has ceased to have direct application to the life of faith for believers of Yeshua. I think this is the standard position in the Christian church of our day. I, I don't, it would, would not have been the standard position in the Christian church of the Reformation, for instance. Or even, of, even I would even say 100 years ago, it wouldn't have been the standard position, but it is the standard position today. 
that um, only what is written in the New Testament is what we are required to do. The commands of the New Testament are something we have no choice on. Only the New Testament forms the authority for our life and practice. The Old Testament, I'm using the terms of the that are usually used, the Old Testament is there to help us interpret the New Testament. You, you know the old phrase, the new is in the old contained, the old is by the new explained. You know, I, all these little uh, these little riddles usually have more rhyme than, than, than meaning. So, I mean, there's no doubt about the fact that the Tanakh points forward to uh, the person of Yeshua and therefore shines a light forward to the apostolic scriptures. There's no doubt about that. And there's no doubt about the fact that one misinterprets the apostolic scriptures if one does not know the Tanakh. That, that's clear. But to think that somehow one part of God's word has less authority than another part of God's word, to me, is, doesn't follow. Surely the Torah is the, is the foundation, is the essential measuring stick by which all of the rest of the scriptures must be measured in order to maintain its canonicity. No doubt with that. At least that's our position. That would not necessarily be the common position of the Christian church, but, it's, but I, th I think it's the proper position. But I think once we have recognized and received the infallible word of God in the apostolic scriptures, then we have to say they have ever as much authority as Moses. The comment is being made, let me catch people up listening here, the comment is being made that uh, about Galatians chapter 3, that, uh, that the Torah is a pedagogue leading us to Messiah and to faith in the Messiah. Okay, and, and Gary's reminding us that, that it's leading us to faith, and faith includes uh, both the inter-trust uh, as well as the, uh, the outward faithfulness or obedience. It includes both. Yeah, but you're right, uh, Ken, that when you have a, a pedagogue, by the way, was not the teacher. I think that's sometimes misunderstood in Galatians chapter 3. Greek has a perfectly good word for teacher, didaskalos. Well, that's not the word that's used in it says when it says a tutor. That's a I think that's a poor translation. What is a pedagogue? Anybody know what a pedagogue is? <laughs> a servant. And and the servant, the pedagogue, was the person who made sure that the kid got from home to his master teacher and got back home from the teacher. He guarded him back and forth. Yes. Precisely, like uh, like someone who was uh, just taking charge of the child and, and and was responsible for their safety. Yeah, bodyguard and uh, basic overseer of the of the child to make sure that they uh, they got the studies done and and uh, got to got you know didn't play hooky, <laughs> you know got the, well that that's that's perfect. So it's not that the Torah loses that function. It's just once you have graduated from school, you no longer need a pedagogue. Right? Once, once you have gone through that course, you no longer need the pedagogue, and that's his point. Now that you're no longer a uh, uh, child, you know, you've, you have different needs and, and so forth. Okay. If our verse stood in isolation of any larger context, such an interpretation of the word fulfill would be within the realm of possibilities, because the word plerao does mean to complete. But such a meaning cannot stand here for the obvious reason that the following verses, which are explanatory of the opening verse, Yeshua clearly admonishes his Talmudim to do and to teach the Torah. Moreover, the appeal to the enduring creative order until heaven and earth pass away makes no sense if in this opening verse Yeshua has declared the Torah and prophets to be finished. Why would he say not the least thing will pass away as long as heaven and earth don't pass away? Why would he say that if basically his opening statement was, I've completed it, it's finished, it's over. Furthermore, the fact that fulfill must append not only to the Torah, but also to the prophets. In other words, he not only fulfilled the Torah, but he also fulfilled the prophets, renders this interpretation impossible. No one would claim that the words of the prophets have been finished in the sense of no longer having an active and direct application to the lives of believers. Others note that most often in the apostolic scriptures, the verb plerao is used in the fulfillment formula introducing prophecy. For instance, that the words of prophet such and such might be fulfilled. Fulfilled is the same word, plerao. And that it should be so interpreted here. 
Carson is representative of this view. The best interpretation, he says, of these difficult verses says that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets in that they point to him and he is their fulfillment. The antithesis is not between abolish and keep, but between abolish and fulfill. For Matthew, then, it is not the question of Jesus' relation to the law that is in doubt, but rather its relationship to him. Therefore, we give plerao exactly the same meaning as in the formula quotations, which in the prologue, have already laid great stress on the prophetic nature of the Old Testament and the way it points to Jesus. So now Carson and many with him would say, when Yeshua said, I did not come to abolish, but I came to fulfill everything that the Torah and the prophets are saying is going to be fulfilled in me. There is a significant problem, however, with this interpretation. And that is simply that in the quotation formula, the verb fulfill is always in the passive mood. That the words of the prophet X might be fulfilled Yeshua, however, does not say that the Torah and the prophets are fulfilled in him, but rather that he came to fulfill them. That's the difference. It's a subtle difference, but it's a difference. It isn't that his coming fulfills something. It's that he intends to actively do something in relationship to fulfilling the Torah and the prophets. Of course, there is surely the sense that all of God's purposes find their fulfillment in Yeshua. For as many as are the promises of God in him, that is in Yeshua, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. 2 Corinthians 1.20 But to understand fulfill in our verse as entirely enveloped in the work of Yeshua himself does not fit with the following context. For there he admonishes his Talmudim both to do and to teach the Torah, meaning that his having come to fulfill the Torah is seen in the way the Torah would be active in their lives and the lives of those they would teach. In other words, you still can't say the fulfillment of the Torah and the prophets is all done by Yeshua, not by me. That the, the context, the following context, doesn't allow us to do that. Whatever Yeshua is going to do to fulfill the Torah and the prophets, it involves his disciples, not simply his own personal work in his death and his resurrection and so forth. A number of commentators have pointed to the fact that the Hebrew term that most likely stands behind the Greek plerao is the hifil of the Hebrew verb kum, hakim. The verb kum has the meaning to arise, get up, stand up, and in the hifil to erect, establish, or confirm. We find this form of kum used regularly in covenant contexts of the Tanakh. For instance, God promises to establish a covenant with Noah. He said, I will establish a covenant with you. That's our word. He does the same with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Israel. In each of these examples, the hifil form of kum is used. This regular use of the verb kum to mean establish or confirm, is thus believed to be the background for Yeshua's use of plerao in our verse. Thus to give the meaning, I came to establish or confirm the Torah and the prophets. However, as much as I like that, <laughs> a significant problem with this view is that in the Septuagint, plerao never is used to translate the verb kum. We would expect that if Yeshua was, spe we would assume he was speaking Hebrew, maybe Aramaic, but probably Hebrew, that if he said, he did not come to abolish, but but I came hikimti. I came to establish or to confirm. And then Matthew in or whoever did the Greek said, "Oh, well, we'll use plerao." Well, that, that, they wouldn't have used plerao to translate kum. Just that wasn't the that wasn't the verb that would have been used. Moreover, plerao is most often used to translate the Hebrew verb mala, to be full, to fill up, or to complete something. Further, so it is argued, the verb mala is not used in the sense of establish or confirm. So this has been a major argument by those who say Yeshua came to complete is the use of this verb, plerao, and what Hebrew word might have stood behind it, male. If we do place the weight upon the Septuagint use of plerao as the normal translation for the Hebrew mala to be full, fill up, or complete, and thus postulate that our master used this Hebrew word when he proclaimed his purpose to fulfill the Torah and the prophets, there remains the question of whether mala can have the sense of establish or confirm, or does it absolutely have to mean fill up and complete? Well, this meaning would best fit the context, right? With the rest of the verses. And in fact, there are several instances where the verb malah does have this meaning. In Jeremiah 44.25, now this is a, the context is a negative, but I'm looking at the use of the verb malah. Okay, I'm just looking to see how it's used. As for you and your wives, you have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled it with your hands. 
We will certainly perform our vows that we have vowed to burn sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. Go ahead and confirm. Now we have the word kum, your vows, and certainly perform them. Asa, do your vows. Now, what does it mean you have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled it with your hands? It means what you have spoken, you have established, confirmed, done it with your hands, right? There's one use uh, of the word malah. What is striking in this text is the combined use of malah and asa, to do, which exactly parallel plerao, to fulfill, and to do in the next verses. In the Jeremiah passage, it is clear that to fulfill with one's hands what has been spoken by the mouth is to perform the vow and thus to confirm it. Another text also uses the verb malah in the sense of establish or confirm. In 1 Kings 1, 13 through 14, here Adonijah has declared himself king at the prospect of David's soon demise. The prophet Natan goes to Bathsheba and alerts her of the situation and then gives, her, gives his counsel. Go at once to King David and say to him, Have you not, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Behold, while you are still there speaking with the king, I will come in after you and fill up your words. Confirm. There's the verb malah. Same verb that's used throughout the Hebrew scriptures that's translated by plerao, our word, in uh, Matthew 5.17. So it means to confirm or to make more certain. Sure, it can mean to complete. It can mean to fill up. But it, there are in, these two instances show us that it can also mean to confirm or to establish. Precisely. Not completing it for us. Showing us how to do it. Which is what I mean by confirming it. And, and establishing it. Causing it to be active in the lives of his disciples. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like a paint by number. I, you know, we all hate those. But our kids love them. Uh, maybe you don't hate them. I shouldn't say that. Maybe you love them. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. I take it all back. I take it all back. Um, those of you that have an eye for art, you probably think that paint by number just is a little bit lacking. But at any rate, um, you know, when, you're, when your kid gets the paint by number and he starts it out and he's doing fine, but then he gets tired of it, right? And it sits and it sits and it sits and it sits and it sits. And you say, you say, what are you, are you going to finish this or what? And the kid says, no, I, I really don't. I, I'm tired of that. I don't want to do it. And so you say, I'll finish it for you. I'll fill it up for you. I'll complete it for you. That's been the normal understanding of Yeshua's words here. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to complete it for you so you don't have to. But that's not obviously what the context means. And, and uh, so, this, uh, what I've shown you here is that the verb malah can clearly mean to establish, to confirm, to make active. The question is asked, what... Uh, what what verb does he use? No, he uses the word to establish istemi, which is a different verb. It means to stand up. And by the way, istemi is the verb that is usually uh, used in the Septuagint to translate kum, hakim, the the other verb. Yeah. Okay. So in both of these instances, both in Jeremiah and First Kings, the Septuagint translates the Hebrew malah with plerao, the same verb used in our. Matthew text. It seems entirely warranted then to understand plerao to fulfill in our text to mean establish or confirm. Not only is there good lexical warrant for interpreting plerao in this manner, but it also fits well with the following context. Yeshua's purpose in terms of the Torah was to bring it back to its original intention and thus to establish or confirm it in the lives of his Talmudim. For through the many rabbinic fences that had been added to the written Torah, it had become so encumbered as often to be a burden. What is more, having adopted the theology that Jewish status was the basis for righteousness before God, the rabbis had shifted the Torah from its original purpose to that of establishing their Jewish identity. Yeshua's purpose was to unravel the Torah from the web of man-made laws and bring it back to its original purpose, to aid, protect, and guide the people of God and to constantly bring them to a greater reliance upon and faith in him. We may thus understand our verse in this way. Do not think that I have come to render the Torah and prophets in any manner as ineffectual. On the contrary, I have not come to render them ineffectual, but to confirm their words and establish them in your lives. So if, you know, now you understand, I know you all understand, that if you were to say to someone, maybe a teacher in another 
uh, venue say, this is what Matthew 5.17 means. Here's what it means. He would say, or he might well say, no, that's not what it means at all. So there is clearly no agreement on that. And, and I have taught it, you know, we have discussed it and taught it tonight as though it's, you know, it's just as the obvious thing that anyone could see. But it is not so obvious. If it were so obvious to everyone, there would be a lot of differences in the way religion, uh, especially evangelical Protestant religion, was carried out in our day. It would be significantly different. So if you take to heart at least this position, if you take it to heart, what, what is the only conclusion that you can come to? If my master is Yeshua, if he is my Lord, if he is my king, and if his purpose for coming was to establish the Torah and the prophets in my life, I better get busy and find out what it says and what it means and what I'm supposed to do about it. And when I first, when I first studied this years ago, the horrible thought raced through my head and heart that I just said to you. I said to myself, surely there must be other ways of interpreting this verse. Because if I interpret it as I see it here, as it seemed so plain to me at that point, I'm doomed. My dad's going to think I'm a heretic. The seminary's going to think I'm a heretic. Uh, it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible that 2,000 years of Christianity could be wrong about this verse. And I'll be honest with you. I tried all kinds of other interpretations. And none of them, you, and I knew all the time that it was very simple. It was very clear. Yeshua intended to bring the Torah back to its original purpose, which was so that the people of God could know him in truth, could walk in this world with the joy and the guardianship that the Torah provides. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.